We have a new child. Didn't come quite as easy as you thought he would come, did he? <laughs> Eli was born. That's a little short, but Eli, that's Elijah. <laughs> was born that Tuesday. Mother and child are doing fine. And it's uh, great, great to have them doing well. We'll... Uh, and the worship was good for a two-man team, Mike. You, you. Jaime did it all. <laughs> Jaime had to come off the injured reserve. <laughs> what about those other guys? We'll, we'll, hey, we'll chastise them when they get back into town. How's that? We're in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 24. Then we'll look at chapter 4, 1 through 7. But in verse 21 of chapter 3, we have God in His mercy and His grace reaching down to mankind, making provision for man's sin and guilt, making provisions that his sin could be covered. And for that to happen, an animal, a lamb, had to be slaughtered by God to clothe Adam and Eve, who now realize that they are naked. Adam and Eve, their guilt requires them to do something, so they sew fig leaves together, trying desperately to cover their shame. Have you ever been ashamed of your behavior? <laughs> if you've lived <laughs> any length of time, you have. Uh, have you been ashamed of your sin? Then you know how Adam and Eve felt. Sin brings shame and guilt. Adam and Eve, their sin is called transgression. And all transgression is, is purposeful sin. You've thought about it and you went ahead and did it. Uh, that should never be the case. But unfortunately, it is the case sometimes where we transgress. But Adam and Eve, they violated God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge. And we can and do become casual about sinning. And we'll usually say things like, well, it's my nature. It's uh, a character flaw. Don't ever become casual about sin. We receive forgiveness abundantly through Jesus and the work on the cross. And all we have to do is repent, turn, ask for forgiveness. And our Lord is gracious and He gives us repentance. But repentance means to make an about face and go the opposite direction of the behavior or sin that you have committed. Premeditated sin transgression happens to be a big deal to God. It's not a casual thing to Him. And never think for a moment to simply feel remorse for your sin that that is repenting, because it isn't. Adam and Eve, they sew fig leaves together, and God says, sorry, that doesn't get it. And I personally believe that Adam and Eve 
are present there when God kills a lamb to cover their nakedness. I believe they witnessed that. Because later, when a person sinned under the Levitical law, they would bring a spotless lamb to the priest and the priest would place the hands of the sinful person on the head of that lamb and then he would slit the throat of that lamb and you would sit there because of your sin you would feel the life bleed out of that lamb because of your sin. It's hard to be casual about sin when you see a lamb that had to die for your sin. Did God take Adam and Eve through this? Perhaps. Regardless, Adam and Eve know that this lamb has died because of their sin. Because God took the the skin, the hide of that lamb, and he made them clothes to cover their nakedness. But a lamb had to die. For we read in Hebrews that it's God's requirement that the shedding of blood has to be there for the remission of sin. God has established right up front from the beginning, do not be casual about sin. A lamb was slain for Adam and Eve. Later, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will shed his blood for all of mankind. And from the very beginning, God wants us to be aware of the cost to receive forgiveness. First it was the blood of the Lamb, and then it's the blood of Jesus. So we're never to be casual about sin, or for that matter, never to be casual about repentance of sin. Because God isn't. It's a big deal to God. So let's read Genesis chapter 3, the last three verses there, and uh, we'll go from there. Genesis three twenty-two. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his, out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out this, the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We have sin. Direct disobedience has brought forth eviction from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve must exit the Garden. And this happens to be the only home that Adam and Eve have ever known. And God has to banish them from their home, from the garden, because carnal knowledge that they now have requires it. Adam and Eve are driven, forced from the garden, and I think that was probably the greatest penalty that was put upon Adam and Eve. Because Eden has been their sanctuary. It has been their meeting place to worship God. Just like our beautiful metal building here. 
which was almost taken away from us about a year ago last April when the tornadoes came through. But this building is sufficient. It meets our needs, and I'm glad we have it. But when the insurance, our insurance carrier, because we had some damage, they sent some structural engineers out here to look at our building, to measure it. And my concern is, oh, no. What are we going to do if they condemn our building and say we can't meet here? You know, you can't occupy that hazardous structure. <laughs> and I'm fretting. What are we going to do? Are we going to rent a building or, or, or are we going to buy a tent, put it up out there in the lot? What are we going to do? And I'm thinking all these bad thoughts, and they okayed our building, so we did some repairs. But the one week after the tornadoes where there was no electricity in this Huntsville-Madison area for a week, we had an outdoor service that following Sunday. And uh, we thought it'd be good to grill some hot dogs because uh, some of you people hadn't had even a warm hot dog in about a week, uh, one of the fellows was telling me, you know, he says, you know how hard it is to brew a cup of coffee on a, on a barbecue? I said, I said I, nope, I don't know what happens. Up in Tennessee, we had power. We come on up. But for several months around here, it was cleanup mode. We repaired our building. We did some repair. We cut up a lot of fallen trees and that kind of thing. But back to Adam. Adam has been evicted from his paradise as well as his meeting place, his tabernacle. And his newfound knowledge of good and evil from eating from the tree of knowledge, it had a great price. And God set a cherubim at the entrance of Eden that held a flaming sword turning in every direction to keep out anyone that would want to come in. That cherubim guards the entrance to Eden, guards it from Adam and Eve or from anyone else that would maybe come along. And God will not allow anyone to partake of the tree of life in a fallen state. Part of the plight of the fall is we grow old. We wear out. And death can be a blessing. Because death can mean a removal of disease, a dilapidated body, a removal of a broken down existence. I love what the Apostle Paul says. He said, for me to live as Christ... To die is gain. The psalmist writes, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Our death as a believer is not the end. It's really paradise being restored. We change addresses. Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have that great hope of being with our Lord, being in paradise. And that's before heaven of heavens. Uh, 
part of my responsibility as a pastor is doing funerals. Doing funerals of a non-believer, and occasionally you're called on to do that, or even a person that you're not sure of their salvation. That's a difficult thing. But doing the funeral of a believer is a blessing because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Because the hope that this is not the end. And in the last verse of chapter 3, we have paradise lost to man. Paradise. There's no Greek word for paradise. Uh, Paradise is a Persian word or thought, uh, and it denotes a very large garden that is safely enclosed, perhaps with a big stone wall, a naturally beautiful place with uh, fruit trees and domesticated animals, uh, clear babbling brooks, uh, idealistic type setting, what we would generally maybe associate with heaven. However, Adam and Eve are now prohibited from entering Eden. And the cherubim, with his lightsaber turning in every direction, he guards the entrance to Eden. And then Adam and Eve begin their toilsome, their laborious existence outside of the garden. God has been faithful to instruct them on sacrifice. Uh, Most likely, God did this at an altar. But we're not given the details. We just are given the fact that Adam probably knew what it was like to sacrifice. So let's read the first seven verses of chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. We have here Adam knowing his wife, Eve. Isn't that a polite way to say that they had sexual relations? I mean, it really is. Uh, The way the world describes uh, a sexual interaction between a couple is usually very coarse and very vulgar. How nice it is to say, Adam knew his wife. Eve becomes pregnant and she gives birth to Cain. Eve probably thinks Cain is the seed that God has spoken of. 
her promised child, and she's got high hopes for this child. Cain, his name means, here he is, or I have begotten him. Quite possibly, Eve believes Cain is the promised Messiah. We parents tend to naturally think or expect greatness from our children. Eve was no different. Cain's birth had to be a surprise to Adam and Eve in this way. Neither Eve nor Adam ever had a childhood. (laughs) And yet they have a child. Here they've got a baby. And he arrives on the scene. And uh, it's got to be a surprise. How do we take care? How do we nurture this little baby? Adam probably looked at Cain and said, Wow, he's little. (laughs) Sure hope he grows. (laughs) Remember, the only birth they have seen has been of animals. They haven't seen a human birth. And Eve then has another child, Abel. Abel, in time, becomes a a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. And it didn't take thousands of years for these boys to figure out how to be a shepherd or how to grow crops. In verse 3, And in the process of time, Cain brings an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel brings the firstlings of the flock and God accepts Abel's offering and he rejects Cain's. God himself, it's important that we understand this, has demonstrated to Adam, who no doubt has instructed his son, the process of sacrificing a lamb. Cain knew what God required of a sacrifice and the way to make a sacrifice, how to present an offering to the Lord. And today, we're not free to just worship in any willy-nilly way we please. I got an email early this morning inviting us out to some praise and worship thing that's going on. (laughs) I don't want to offend anybody, but they said you may have some praise dancers that you would like to participate in. No, we don't. We don't have any praise dancers. Sorry. And let me tell you, we won't have any praise dancers either. (laughs) If you want to express yourself in dance... You go ahead, but you do it in the privacy of your home. But anyway, uh, moving along. (laughs) Uh, Cain knew the process that God required for making an offering. And that is to be done and in spirit and in truth. And to do that, faith always has to be present in true worship of God. Without faith, It is impossible to please God. 
Cain offers his own works. Abel offers a lamb in faith. Cain then becomes very angry with God. So angry that it can be seen in his countenance. Now we can theorize, we can speculate as to why Cain's offering is rejected. But the bottom line is, it was not offered with a pure heart in faith. It's that simple. And we have a process here early on one lamb, one man. Years later, it became one lamb for one family. And then eventually it evolved in one lamb on the Day of Atonement for the sin of one nation. And finally, we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. But back to Cain. God, in His mercy and patience and love, He offers Cain another chance. Listen to God's questions to Cain in verse 6. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? This is not a peer of Cain asking him these questions. It's God in his ultimate power and strength trying to reason with an angry, sinful man. God's questions show His loving patience with man. And God is warning Cain. And any angry person that has set their heart against God, there's a warning here. For Cain, it's his moment of destiny. He's at that crossroads. He's at that apex. He's at that point. Whatever he decides will follow him the rest of his life. And his entire life now rests upon his decision to either be angry or to repent. I happen to think God brings every human being to that point. What are you going to do with my son Jesus? What are you going to do with him? And it will determine the rest of your life and the outcome of your life. How Cain responds to God's warning about his anger is going to follow him all the days of his life. And we know the, the sad decision that Cain makes. He's not repentant. He's angry. Cain is angry at God. But Cain will act out his anger and his wrath towards his brother. When any of us are angry, it's very difficult to be rational and loving. Or for that matter, it's very difficult to be repentant when you're angry. Paul in Ephesians 4, he writes and he says, 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Angry people do regretful things. Angry people almost always commit sinful acts. Behind anger is the thought or attitude, I have been done wrong. This situation is unfair, and that can be true. That can be true. We're all done wrong. But to cave into anger, to submit to it, to be wrathful, is submitting to the devil. Cain is set forth as an example for all of mankind. Cain's sin and anger will destroy him and it's going to destroy those around him. And it will do the same to you and I. Cain is given another opportunity to repent, another opportunity to offer sacrifices, but he chooses instead to murder his brother. So sad. We live in a very violent society, an angry world. We have angry people committing the most horrendous crimes. They get automatic weapons. They go into crowded public places and begin to shoot and kill people that they don't even know because they're angry. Mass murderers from angry persons is way too common in our world. And we've just recently had two of them. Cain is angry towards God. But he can't murder God, can he? <laughs> What's it going to do to God? So what does he do? He murders his brother. And he makes that transition way too easily. I can't hurt God but I can hurt my brother. To be angry without a cause towards a brother and not necessarily your sibling, that person is in a very dangerous place. When Jesus was teaching on the Beatitudes, he spoke about anger. You may want to turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to look at several verses there. Matthew 5, verse 21 through 24. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We know, and all of society knows, that murder is a capital offense. It is so offensive. It is so offensive in God's eyes that under the law, there was no offering, no sin offering for murder. There was nothing you could do. David murdered Uriah, and he received forgiveness, but a prophet of God had to come to David and tell him, your sin is forgiven, because there was nothing David could do. So God had to send a prophet to let him know that he was forgiven. Jesus teaches in this passage to be angry without a cause. You're in danger of the judgment. But guilty people, even murderers, can usually find a cause or a reason for why they have murdered. Jesus defines those causes in his words. When you read scripture, you're never allowed to murder for your own personal you're not allowed to kill for your own personal sake. There's several, or actually I only know of two. You can be angry for God's honor. If someone is insulting God, that can cause a righteous anger, which is okay, just be careful not to sin. You can be angry when you see Perhaps a child or an innocent person being harmed or wronged. You're allowed to be angry at that. But you're not allowed to be angry for being personally assaulted or done wrong. You were never allowed that privilege. Jesus elevated the law from prohibitive action to matters of the heart when he says, Do not be angry. Or you're murdering. He took it from what we would call the impractical and he made it practical. Unabated, unjustified anger in the eyes of God is murder. Now we want to soften that, don't we? Well, I didn't actually kill anybody. You're a murderer. You're a murderer. That's the same thing about if, you know, you look upon a woman in lust, you're an adulterer. Well, I didn't do the act. You're an adulterer in the eyes of God. It's that simple. What are some of the signs of anger? Ridicule. Are you hard on others that fall short? Do you even fall into name-calling? Jesus says, you can't call somebody Raka. And Raka simply means empty-headed. Do you ever call somebody stupid? Do you ever call some other driver an idiot? Be careful. <laughs> I'm preaching to myself on that one. 
My job in life, apart from being a pastor, is to correct all the bad drivers out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just call to do it. <laughs> but to call a brother a fool or words that are similar puts a person in danger of hell fire. That's strong. A very popular cursing that goes on in our world, and we hear it all the time, even on TV, is calling down God's damnation on a situation or on another person. And you and I hear it way too often. We hear God damn him, God damn her, God damn it. That should make your blood boil. A person using that kind of condemning language is first of all trying to speak for God and they are in danger of hellfire according to God's Word. God is sovereign. He will condemn and damn whomever He pleases. And we're not allowed to make that judgment. And any person assuming he can cast God's judgment or damnation on another person puts his own soul in danger. Brothers and sisters, it is so critical for us as believers to keep a clean, pure heart before God. An outburst of anger being vindicative, holding a grudge is dangerous ground for any believer. Concerning judgment, Jesus and Jesus alone has the right to condemn. Never are we given that right. For Jesus and Jesus alone sees the heart. He sees the whys. If you have an anger problem, and I had one for years, if you have a tendency for outburst of anger, make your anger an issue of prayer. Allow God to give you His peace of the situation. Allow God to put out that fire that burns within you. Because ungodly anger is nothing more than pride and self-righteousness. Because when you get angry, you're saying, I would never do that for whatever you're angry at. That's self-righteous. And by pride, we would call somebody else Raka or a fool. God's word to Cain should be a word of warning to every human being. Sin lies at your door, the door of your heart, and sin's desire is for you. But you should rule over it. And we rule over it with a pure heart 
and be full of the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit living it through us. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, we we read about Cain. We see you reaching out to him. And then we read about Cain killing his brother. And how sad it is. Cain snuffs out a life. A life that you have given a man. And then you tell us that anger is right there with it. Lord, I would pray that each and every one of us would not be a victim of anger. We don't want to be doing things that we're ashamed of. We don't want to be doing things that are are dangerous to our soul, Lord. We want to be walking in the Spirit. We want to be functioning in the Spirit. We want to have a clean heart before You, Lord. So do a good work in our hearts and lives. Lord, teach us to catch anger before it takes hold and come and bring it before You and ask You to take away that burning fire that anger can bring. Do this good work in our lives, Lord. Thank You for sharing Your Word with us, giving us truth, about what anger really is. So I pray, Lord, for myself and I pray for each one here that anger would not be part of our lives. We pray for this and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.